1: And we're back with three days of news on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We were off yesterday. We'll be off some days next week and some days the week after, but we will be talking about news each of the weeks ahead. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And since we have three days of news to talk about, we better get cracking Michigan did it immediately with voters approving the idea in November. Now, finally, Ohio has in an effort to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. Or Laura, do we have multiple efforts? Are we this disorganized?
2: We have multiple efforts. We are this disorganized. So two separate groups announced Monday that they are working to get the amendments for abortion rights in Ohio, setting up a possible vote as soon as November of 2023. That's the one group that's pretty much committed to that date, Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights, and that what date was announced on Monday. They formed a group called Protect Ohio Choice. Now, to get more confusing, another co- consortium, which has been around a lot longer, Ohio Reproductive, oh, sorry, Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom includes groups like Pan, P- Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, Pro-Choice Ohio, Preterm Cleveland, And they're not certain about 2023. They haven't decided on their dates. And that could confuse some voters, which the anti-abortion lobby is really hoping will happen.
1: I don't get why it's taking this long. Like I said, Michigan turned on a dime, had this on the ballot in November, and it's enshrined in the law up there. Why is Ohio so lagging in this?
2: I don't know. You would have thought that with Nan Whaley running for governor, that this would have been front and center for six months. Right. And instead, we've got two groups which aren't even collaborating necessarily.
1: Yeah, I just it's bizarre that they cannot get it together. It seems like a simple one. The majority of Ohioans in every poll we've seen want this. So you could sail this right through. And while you wait and while you delay and while you mess around, you're subject to the tyranny of a minority that's forcing its will upon the majority. It's just you would think they could get it together, get the signatures, get it on the ballot and be done with it. But-
2: well, I wonder if there are disagreements about what the amendment will actually say. Because the goals for the Ohio physicians, they have not written their language yet, they haven't submitted it to the Ohio Attorney General's office, but their goals are are to ensure that Ohioans have access to safe, legal, equitable, and comprehensive reproductive medical care. Preserving the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship and enabling everyone to make reproductive health care decisions. Yeah, free.
1: but but that that I I read all that and it's just nonsense. What people <laughs> right? They want, haven't
2: said a, t- a date. Like they right. haven't said it's going to be legal up to twenty weeks.
1: Right. So what people basically say is, I want what I had with Roe v. Wade. So, so do that. I mean, that it hasn't been that complicated for other states. They're they're throwing all these words around. And look, the the people who are against abortion are way more organized. And so if this effort is muddled and confused the way it started yesterday, then they're going to lose the campaign. It's, it's just, it's quintessential. This is what Democrats always seem to do. They just cannot figure out how to get to the voters. It's Today in Ohio. The photo ID requirement for voters looks likely to be the law in Ohio with a good chance of passing in the next week or two. How does the law compare to photo ID requirements in other states? And how are some of the other proposed election law changes holding up as they move through committees? Lisa, there's a lot of changes coming in the election law, the photo ID being the poster child.
0: Yeah, this is House Bill 458. It requires a photo ID at the polling place or an early voting location. So a Senate committee accepted a substitute version of the bill last week. There will be more hearings on it this week, and it looks like Republicans are poised to approve this. This is really something they've been working on for years, like close to 20 years, but it kind of gained steam in the last uh, few years. So House Bill 458 um, says you can cast a provisional ballot without a photo ID but it will not be counted until the voter returns to their local elections office with a photo ID within seven days of casting their ballot. An earlier provision required an ID to match the current address of the voter, but that was dropped. Also acceptable as an ID, a driver's license, a state ID, military or Ohio Veterans Affairs IDs are also you know, uh, usable. Uh, Free state IDs to those who can prove their identity and citizenship are available. Um, You cannot use a passport like they do in Arkansas. You cannot use your Medicaid or Medicare card as an ID either, which they do in Wyoming. Now, here's a little troubling thing. There are exemptions for religious objections to being photographed because Amish typically don't like that. But you must file an affidavit detailing your objection to the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Um, it's estimated that 500,000 adults back in 2011 have lacked a state-issued ID. We don't have any more recent numbers on that. Okay.
1: okay. So th- wh- what's interesting about this is is that in pretty much all the polls that are done, people largely favor this. This is something that, that I think the number is like 70% say they should do this. And and what you hear is that photo ID requirements are ubiquitous in our lives. Everywhere we go, we have to have it. The people who are against it keep saying, oh, this will depress the voting. It's too hard to get them. But the answer seems to be make it help people get them. And we've been trying to get an, a read. Um, I don't think we've done this yet. Laura, correct me if I'm wrong. On in other states that have done this and a lot have. What has it done to voting? What has it done to the the people that don't have IDs and what percentage of them are voting? And th- this is coming. So the opponents are, have lost. So the next step should be, how do we make it easier for people to get the requirement?
2: We do have some information in Andrew's story about what happened in other states, but they say it's really inconclusive. And there are so many variables because of who's on the ballot what election cycle it is, and even what the weather is like on that day. So there were some stats in there. It dropped mm-hmm. a couple of percentage points, but so did Ohio, and we didn't have the law. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to say.
1: So, Lisa, when you talk about this, that you you get this, this group of people that says, this is bad, this is wrong. When I put this out on subtext, most of the people I heard back from favor it, and the ones that don't are saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Aren't there answers that people can bring? Because this is going to happen now. It seems like it's unstoppable.
0: Well, I, 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 don't, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. But um, are you saying that they can bring other forms of ID? I'm not. You, you, what but you're you
1: mentioned saying. that that the, there are ways to get the ID. That the, the, you don't even if it's right. not a driver's license. That there, it's not like the law is making it impossible for people to get the ID. And maybe there are ways. That that this could be amended to make it easier, where you turn libraries into places that can issue government IDs or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I do like the idea of offering free state IDs. I mean, I don't, I think that's something new. I had not heard that yeah. before. Even if we look at the, you know, the rest of the nation, you know, like I, I mentioned, Arkansas and Wyoming allow different kinds of IDs. Thirty-five states in all require some form of ID, but some are more strict than others about are, you know what they'll accept
1: what are some of the other election There's two different bills and the other bill has a lot of little changes in it um, what what all is in there
0: you caught,
1: me. Uh, the, caught the, me. The second bill that would deal with the threshold for the constitutional amendments.
0: Oh, like right, that. right, right, right. Yeah, that's House, house Joint Resolution 6. And uh, an Ohio House committee looked at that uh, yesterday. That would set the approval threshold for state constitutional amendments at 60%, but still 50% plus one vote in the legislature. And then at House Bill 294, which is that kind of omnibus bull, bill with a lot of changes, um, has also you know moved through. The, there have been so many changes, it's kind of hard to keep up with.
1: Well, the constitutional amendment change could very well backfire. You're seeing groups that are not traditionally aligned with liberal causes coming out of the woodwork now to say, if they do this, we're going to fight at police and firefighters and others. This is going to come across as anti-democratic. And Frank LaRose is the leader of that. And he's better be careful because if this goes down in flames, and I, I think the best precedent for this is when John Kasich tried to, to make it a, a anti-union state, the voters went in large numbers and, and canceled that right out and send him send him packing. If that happens to Frank LaRose here, Sharon Brown is a very effective campaigner. And I could see the commercials about, you know, Frank LaRose tried to take away democratic rights in Ohio. Imagine what he'll do if he gets to Washington. It could really tar him.
0: Yeah, it could. But it, I mean, it passed along a party line vote. You know, it's, and with our supermajority, it's looking like it's going to happen. And they definitely want to get it done in the lame duck session.
1: But then it goes to the voters. And this isn't like you're voting for a red or a blue candidate. You're voting on the issue. And it's anti democratic. You're basically asking people to reduce the value of their vote. And what you're seeing is very widespread groups from all sorts of different backgrounds coming out saying, no, we don't want to be a more anti-democratic state. So interesting developments. We'll have to see if this actually does pass. It's today in Ohio. We've been pumping out stories in the wake of the Metro Health scandal that cost former CEO Akram Boutros his job. First, we have some detailed comments from the board for the first time. A lot of people have questioned where their oversight was in not knowing that Boutros had given himself just under $2 million in secret bonuses. Layla, what did the board tell us?
3: Well, they claim that they were not... Negligent, only too trusting of Akram Boudros. And they say that was because he seemed like such a visionary and they just bought into that. J.P. Silvers, the vice chairman of the board, issued a written statement defending the board. He's he's a professor of finance and banking at Case Western Reserve University. He's been on the board since 2011. He said, quote, the CEO has a fiduciary responsibility to be honest and transparent with the board, especially in matters involving compensation. This is a balancing act of governance based on trust, which fails when ethical standards are not upheld. So this this written statement was in response to questions that reporter Julie Washington had posed to the board members about how it happened. How did Akram Boutros manage to take unauthorized bonuses without the board's awareness of it? And doesn't that constitute negligence on the board's part? They they chose to have Silver speak for all of them with this written statement.
1: Yeah, and, and look, I get it. I get where they're coming from. They're volunteers. They're part-time and for five years, his first five years, Boutros really elevated the place getting their trust. And so you can see how they feel bitten by this. On the other hand, when Boutros came in and said, I want an extra $7 million for the extra bonuses, you just wish one of them said, can I see the spreadsheet of who's getting uh, those, Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: I mean, what, what to me points to their culpability in this is the two changes that they've made so far. So one of them is the CEO's annual bonus to m- bonus must now be the subject of a separate board resolution and will be audited to assure compliance with all Metro Health compensation policies and requirements. And then the second one is compensation consultants must verify details of the CEO's pay and benefits with human resources rather than relying on data provided by the CEO alone. So I'm sorry, but to those two policy changes, I say, duh, <laughs> what, 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 I mean, what's the job of the board if not to do those two things? And I mean, trust, but verify, right? The fact that, And the fact that they're now instituting a system of verifying the information rather than taking the CEO's word for it, to me, is an acknowledgement that they should have been doing that all along.
1: Yes. I, I. Again, we're cynical journalists, and so we're more totally. skeptical than most. I, I, do, I, I don't think you can look away from the fact that Akron has had a duty to tell them. When he put in for that money and he said, hey, here's the money for this year I want for the bonuses, even if they don't ask, he should say, by the way, full disclosure, my name's on here. Here's how much I'm getting. Here's how I arrived at that. And, he, and everybody in that situation would know you have that duty and he didn't do that and that that is where if i were a board member i'd feel like you know you didn't follow your fiduciary responsibility yeah, to us yeah sure but He's neither not... did the
3: board i'm sorry right. yeah <laughs> go ahead i'm with lisa on that go ahead lisa i mean he took advantage he exploited their failure as a board
1: go ahead lisa right
0: and honestly he as you know as a ceo he should expect the board to be looking at his stuff
1: Okay, I, I, I don't think we're really disagreeing here. <laughs> we're just coming at it from different angles and saying... Yeah, but no,
0: there. but it just seems like everyone's wanting to blame Butrus, and I, I, I feel like the board is almost equally culpable.
1: Although the board didn't get an extra $2 million, so <laughs> I do think the culpability goes where the money goes, too. Um, that's a lot of money. It's today in Ohio, part two of Metro Health. Julie Washington took a look at three decades of issues with lax board oversight at the hospital system. Let's start that conversation, Laura, with what happened in 1993, and eventually get to the question as to whether the board setup, in and of itself, is the failure.
2: Yeah. So longtime CEO Henry Manning was forced out in 1993. This was a double dipping controversy, and the county prosecutor ended up negotiating a settlement to slice his original severance agreement that was approved by the board when this all came to light. He had been president and CEO since 1970, and he helped create this new private umbrella organization that he would lead so that they could have an affiliation with St. Luke's. And what's crazy is the hospital, well, one of the crazy things, the hospital hospital spent $4,000 on lawyers just to create this arrangement so that Manning could get paid $297,000 a year in 1993, remember, plus a $70,000 a year pension that he couldn't have received by staying in his old job. And the board found out, they forced him out with this $991,000 buyout, and the prosecutor's office ended up filing, filing suit to stop it because it was excessive, they said, and a misuse of public funds. And the commissioners at the time opposed the buyout out outright. They said they shouldn't be getting a buyout. He should just be gone. So that was so, the 93. 93-
1: so Yeah, so let's stop there because there are a couple of things that happened there that are interesting. One, the CEO was basically taking MetroHealth into a for-profit secondary company that would mm-hmm. allow him to get paid twice, which was was secret until the new CEO pointed it out. But I also found it interesting that in the county commissioner form of government, unlike what we have today with the Lame County Council, the commissioners were on it and did stuff. And we haven't seen the same level of activity by the county council. They did withhold the Metro Health budget at a recent budget hearing, saying we want to see more proof, which was a good sign. I just was surprised at how active the commissioners were in stamping this out, Jim Petro and Tim Hagan in particular.
2: Right. Hagan was quoted in the story basically saying, you know, what they did was wrong. So the board went back to usual. They ended up dissolving the merger with St. Luke's. They had a loose affiliation instead. The whole botched merger ended up costing the hospital $700,000 in legal fees. So that's separate from all of the payouts to the CEO that ended up at a buyout worth $550,000. And that included a one-year contract at $365,000 for
1: consulting.
2: And then 2011, 2013, this practice of granting bonuses to the top executives drew scrutiny. This was under the first county executive of Ed Fitzgerald. He was questioning why former CEO Mark Moran and some other folks got more than 738000 in bonuses when the hospital was losing money. And they defended the bonuses for the board. They said they're constantly in competition for talent with the big boys like the clinic and university hospitals. They need to be comp- um, compensated. But they got called out by county council member Dave Greenspan. He said the salaries were outrageous. What's funny is now Dave Greenspan is a contractor for MetroHealth.
1: Well, the other thing that happened as a result of that is they, as Boutros came in, they completely changed the bonus system so that if they didn't, if they were in the red, nobody got bonuses and they had clear measurements that were supposed to be set to give the bonuses. What happened with Boutros was this supplemental thing where they kind of made up more stuff that they added and he got extra money.
2: Right. And he was setting his own parameters for being successful basically.
1: But it gets back to what Layla said about duh. If if you know there's been controversy with executive bonuses in the past, and you do, why aren't you hawkish on this? Why aren't you asking for every record, knowing that it has been abused in the past?
3: Yeah, how many times do you have to learn that lesson? Well it's a very I mean, good question. But but but, <laughs> but is it
1: really fair then To have a board like this, a volunteer part-time board oversee this, would you be better off having an executive committee with this board of four or five subject experts who are full timers, that their job is to do that oversight and report to the full board? I don't know that it's fair to expect part-time volunteer board members to to know the nitty gritty of what's going on in a multi-billion dollar operation.
2: That is something I think the board should be talking about. I haven't heard them talk about it yet.
1: And I don't know that because it's not registered as a nonprofit in IRS rules, it's a public hospital. I'm not quite sure what you can and can't do. It's people have suggested, well, whatever the clinic in UH do, but I think they are registered nonprofits, whereas Metro Health is not. It's today in Ohio. The CEO of the anti-defamation league talked to reporters and editors in our newsroom Monday about the spike in anti-Semitism in America. Lisa, what did he have to say?
0: Yeah, it was an interesting conversation. We crammed a lot into 30 minutes of talking. So Jonathan Greenblatt, the national director, is here in Cleveland. There's a conference with the Cleveland ADL. So he had a lot of statistics on hand, which I saw, again, repeated by Andrea Mayorkas, the homeland security guy, last night on the news. So anti-Semitic hate crimes in 2021 were 2,717 incidents. That's the highest in ADL history. In Ohio, anti-Semitic incidents have doubled in the last five years. And Greenblatt says, you know, social media is really a super spreader of hate. And he called for regulatory intervention, which is Section 230, which has been been a lot of controversy and debate over it. He said that ADL provided 1,300 tips to law enforcement. And he talked about different, you know, demographics. You know, he said that younger generations are really, ignorant about hate and the Holocaust. They're just painting swastikas on buildings and don't really have any context for what they're doing. He says that anti-Semitism is seen as cool among younger people because they're looking to people like Kanye West and other racists. And they said that, and I didn't know this, but Greenblatt said that anti-Semitism is off the wall hate in online gaming, which I did not know.
1: Did anybody talk about the effect of Donald Trump? I mean, Donald Trump has embraced white supremacists in a big way, and he he hosted Kanye West at uh, his Florida estate. Did that come up at all?
0: Oh, absolutely. He says that, you know, this is something that, that, you know, once people talk about it in public and Trump, it becomes normalized. And he said, that's one of the hardest things they have to fight. You know, you know, social media has not been really good with content moderation and things slip through. And of course we know Twitter is just, you know, the jungle right now. So he said that, you know, we really need to, monitor hate groups. They have 25 to 30 analysts that are tracking right-wing and left-wing extremists. They're also looking at Christian nationalists and other, and they say that they're, you know, trying to lobby the state house for legislation, and they also want to educate. So they, you know, they have, you know, programs where they educate kids with extracurricular, you know, programs about hate.
1: And the only way you really stamp this out is if elected leaders are just, universally condemning it. But we have too many that are profiting from it. Donald Trump top among them. And as long as there are people that some Americans look up to espousing that, I don't know how you fight it.
0: Right. And he said, you know, we really he he really implored anybody in authority, state, local, national, to speak out against hate immediately. He says it's not right versus left, but it's right versus wrong. And people should use their platforms if they have them to speak up.
1: The last time I remember something like this in our country was in the era of George Wallace. Uh, and we we had mm. not experienced it really. You know, he had David Duke, but he was a joke. Uh, it's, but it's back worse than it was, I think, during the Wallace years. It's today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish gave his final State of the County speech pre-recorded and kept it brief. No awkward videos, not many lame attempts at humor. And Layla, the areas he claimed as successes seemed legit. I wish that this had replaced one of those interminable speeches that we had to sit through when he did them at the City Club. <laughs>
3: I know this is the way to do it. 15 minutes. Nicely polished production with some B-roll, no rounds of phony applause from an audience to slow it down. So he focused on on what he called, you know, the five key accomplishments of his administration. The first one is getting us safely through the pandemic, from ensuring that there was enough PPE for frontline workers to protecting folks in congregate living facilities, boosting availability of affordable high-speed internet, all that stuff that kind of came to the fore during the pandemic. His second point was about, giving our kids a great start in life, improving availability of high-quality pre-K programming, raising money with PNC and others to double the capacity of those programs, and and also improving the county's infant mortality rate through the First Year Cleveland initiative. And then he talked about creating and retaining thousands of jobs, investments in small businesses, and and working to retain large employers like Sherwin-Williams and Dealer Tire. And then he talked about creating a more equitable justice system, Mainly, this was about the county's effort to divert low-level nonviolent offenders out of the system and to programs in the community that could help them return to productivity. And he talked about the Diversion Center that takes cases of of folks dealing with mental health crises or in need of addiction treatment. And finally, his last point was ensure. (laughs) I don't know why this one cracked me up, but ensuring that we'll have basketball and baseball to entertain us for years to come. Um, you know the sports teams bring taxes and jobs, he said. But the teams would have left without upgrading their facilities, so you know the county and city led the way to cobble together the resources and and lock in the calves and Guardians for the next fifteen years. That was his. Uh, well,
1: you know, I, and I had to say after I I I read it, I didn't watch it. That that I given points for all that i mean it took leadership to get the arena and progressive field done because a lot of people were fighting it and it is an economic development powerhouse and so he had to stand up to some pretty withering criticism to do it The, the weakest of the five is the jobs claim because politicians always make claims about jobs but he didn't get in the way of the jobs and he did provide some support we've we've chronicled his many failures in the last eight years um and so, when he gave a speech where he's listing what he thought was his were his top five accomplishments, said, okay, those are those are legitimate. You do get to claim those. You can walk out the door feeling a little bit good about yourself,
3: yeah. I mean, he wrapped up by saying that even after all of that, the county is in the best financial position we've been in. He said through careful management and budgeting, he'll, leave the reserve funds of more than 200 million dollars <laughs> yeah
1: that's bogus though because they got all that money from the federal government i know and they <laughs> feel- need a billion dollars for the jail and justice center and they were squandering millions on things like the medical mart and slush funds so he doesn't get to claim that and it was smart not to list that as one of his five because we would have made sure that people understood what happened there it's yep go go ahead
3: Nope. Nope. That's that's it. It's just an affirmation.
1: (laughs) It's today in Ohio. The pandemic put public attention on the need for school districts to have high-speed internet, but nearly three years later, a lot in Northeast Ohio do not. Laura, what are the numbers?
2: Uh, 47 in Northeast Ohio do not have the bandwidth minimum set by the Federal Communication Commission in 2020. That's one MBPs per student in each district. That's 10 times faster than the previous minimum set in 2013. And every Ohio school met the previous benchmark, but now 376 in Ohio do not. The slowest internet speed in the area is Rootstown Local School District in Portage County. That's 0.17 MBPs for all of its 1100 students. And this is the tide for the slowest internet in the entire state. But if you go through this list of 47, there are a whole lot of really good schools on this list, including my kids. I was like, Oh, Rocky River. Hello there. And my alma mater, Revere, Hudson, Beechwood, Chagrin, schools that you wouldn't automatically think of for lagging in technology.
1: Which is surprising because that is kind of the key right now for the transfer of information. So, so the kids, at least in Beachwood, probably have faster internet at home, and in the poorer districts, that probably more challenging. But I was, I was surprised as you were that places like Rocky River and Hudson did not have it.
2: But not Solon. Solon was not on the list <laughs> for not meeting. <laughs> put, put that out there.
1: <laughs> right. All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Since as far back as anyone can remember, Giant Eagle has distributed a print flyer for its weekly sales. But that era is coming to an end. Lisa, we know something about the diminishing of print. Mm. Why is Giant Eagle doing this and do experts think it's a smart move?
0: I think they're just kind of following the lead of their competitors. Uh, so January 12th will be the last weekly ad that's mailed to company, to customers. Copies are still available in all Giant Eagle stores, but they'll now be email, emailing the weekly ad to customers. And you can also get it on their app or their website. So this is only happening in the Cleveland market for now. So Canton, Akron, that may happen sometime next year. Um, it's already gone in Columbus. But uh, Case Western Reserve University Associate Marketing Professor Somali Gosh says Giant Eagle really should proceed with caution. Uh, they say She says that many seniors still don't have smartphones or the internet. A Pew Research study found that 61% of those over 65 owned a smartphone in 2021. That's up from only 13% in 2012. But she says seniors tend to fall back into old habits. They like the print ad. They didn't grow up with technology. So Target's CVS and Walgreens their ads have already gone digital and then the big gun Procter and Gamble which sells everything from soap to toothpaste they'll stop their brand saver coupon inserts in newspapers sometime next year.
1: Yeah it's it's I'm surprised in some ways that they've lasted this long because their their ability to do this digitally and target it is stronger than what they've been doing, but it's uh, for a lot of people are gonna they're gonna miss it. I think they looked at that circular before going to the store. Well,
2: and here's my question: Heinen's and Aldi and Mark, you know, whatever Market Fresh, they all still are gonna deliver flyers. I don't know how long, but does Giant Eagle lose out on some of the people that are just looking for the clearance for the deals that week? I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to see. I, I, I was sad when Target stopped stopped delivering their
1: flyers. (laughs) Okay. It's Today in Ohio. I want to do one more because I am a Stephen King fan. How is the Horror Master helping out a new novelist in Northeast Ohio? And Layla, before I leave this mortal coil, I want to chronicle and catalog all of the many references Stephen King has made to Ohio in his novels. I wish I understood what his connection to Cleveland and Ohio is.
3: Huh. Well, this story made my day. I also love Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this young author, Chelsea Banning from Warren, had self-published her debut fan- historical fantasy novel called Of Crowns and Legends, which is about the descendants of King Arthur. And she was scheduled for a book signing at Pretty Good Books in Ashtabula. She was so excited because 37 people responded that they were going to the event on Facebook, but it turned out that only two people showed up. So Banning turned to Twitter for comfort. She tweeted about the failed book signing and said that she was kind of upset and and embarrassed by the low turnout. Well, this tweet somehow found its way to Stephen King, who shared it and called upon his other famous friends in the literary world to just shower this young writer with love and support. And before long... Some of the most famous authors in the U.S. had begun commiserating with Banning about their own failed book signing events in their career, and they offered her so much encouragement. Margaret Atwood wrote um, that she said, join the club. I did a signing to which nobody came except a guy who wanted to buy some scotch tape and thought I was the help. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen King himself said, at my first Salem's Lot signing, I had one customer, a fat kid who said, hey, bud, do you know where th- where there's some Nazi books? Yeah. <laughs> so not only that, but Banning's original tweet was shared on the Today Show, CBS News and CNN picked it up, and her book skyrocketed to the number one spot on Amazon's list of Arthurian fantasy books, which I can only assume is a wide genre, I guess. And she has been contacted by agents and foreign publishing houses. So she has another book signing at Pretty Good Books scheduled for January 28th. I'll predict that this one won't disappoint her.
1: <laughs> if Stephen King comes, Laura, I want to send a reporter to ask him, what is his connection to Cleveland and all How are we
3: going to know if Stephen King uh, is coming? Uh, we'll see. He, he's... Well, we, should, we should go to this book signing anyway. Yeah. I'd love to see who turns out and how big of a fan base she's developed. Yes. I
2: do think this is really cool. And the publishing industry is really big on Twitter. Like, so... But yeah, hats off to her. So glad everybody's supporting her. I think it's very cool.
1: Yeah, it's a good That's awesome. Good conversation to end on today in Ohio. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. We'll be back tomorrow talking about some more news.